I believe that sunshine, fresh air, and the change of all the different seasons, right? Not just summer and spring, all the seasons, those should be woven into the daily lives and practices of long-term care. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and today's guest is Dr. Michelle Olson. Michelle is a social gerontologist and creative arts therapist currently based in New York, and she's worked extensively as a consultant to aged care providers and individuals throughout the US to help them provide better and more appropriate care for elders. Of particular interest to Michelle are the benefits that time in nature and participation in the arts can bring to older adults, especially those living with dementia, and she recently founded a not-for-profit called Evergreen Minds to offer some group activities that embrace these elements. In this episode, we dig quite deep into Michelle's practices with arts and nature, as well as some more specific information about the American age care system and some of the challenges she's seeing in furthering a person-centered approach. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Michelle Olson. Okay, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us on the program today. Oh, thanks for having me, Ash. Glad to be here. Can we start with a little bit about your story and, and what it is the work that you do? Absolutely. So I have been in the elder care field for over 20 years, and I'm a gerontologist, a social gerontologist. So I study the aging perspective from the whole life course, the whole lifespan. I'm also a creative arts therapist. So basically what I do is I work in elder care settings and not-for-profit organizations. And as we'll talk about, I have a a not-for-profit of my own as well that I um, have recently started. Fantastic. So the the work that you're doing as a social gerontologist, is that mainly um, working with specific organizations or or what what does the work look like in that field for you? Yes. So it actually, in a couple different ways, I do adjunct professor uh, work through uh, Concordia University and I do some work at Vassar College at the Lifelong Learning Center. So that's one kind of aspect where I, I bring my gerontological lens in. And then I do some home care management for a company called Clear Guidance. And I help people who are living in their homes and they might need some some assistance with planning or organizing or transition to, you know, another setting perhaps. And then I also do consulting for elder care organizations that may need some dementia consulting, perhaps some environmental consulting, or um, even consulting with policies, sometimes that type of work comes up. Great. So with your consultancy work, you, you mentioned environmental advice or consultancy. Is, is that to plan environmental spaces or, or the area around um, older adults to be more suitable for them? Right. So particularly in the area of dementia, in regards to um, environmental uh, setting. So how do we plan people's day? How does the space look? How is the lighting? How is the, you know, the actual movement of the, of the space? How are meals being served? And is enough autonomy and agency given to people in these settings? So 
that it kind of encompasses a lot of that that type of thing when I say environment. So, and of Ooh, course, right. my my focus is really on incorporating the outside and the inside, and really keeping people as independent and active as possible. Mm-hmm. The fact that you're being consulted for these these sorts of ideas that implies that there is a, a lack of information sometimes within the aged care system or or those sorts of settings. Right. I think there is a lack of of awareness even. So sometimes, you know, people don't even know. Like I I work in a lot of different, um, for instance, long-term care settings and I'm never approached about it. And sometimes I'm chomping at the bit like, I really want to say something, you know, because I know things could be improved or, you know, how could we add a kitchen to this area to make it more like a home? Or how can we bring people easily to the garden? But people don't always ask. And um, so when I am asked about, you know, different areas um, in dementia care, it, it, it makes me so happy because, you know, then I feel like, okay, they get it. They're on board. They want to change. You know, change is never easy. So it's great when that happens. You said the change there. What is the change that, that is slowly happening that you're seeing? Right. Oh, my gosh. That's such a good question. Because we know that person-centered care or individual-centered care that is the gold standard. That's what everybody wants. And some organizations, they implement bits and pieces, right? They pick and choose. But really, according to guidelines, we should be doing that. But from what I'm finding and talking with staff for many years of different levels of staff, it's challenging. And it's challenging for different reasons, right? So it might be environmental, but it might be they feel um, they don't have enough support from management. I've been told, obviously, the staff to resident ratio is another challenge. So meeting people's daily preferences is a challenge when there's, say, two or 400 residents and, you know, maybe seven staff. So, you know, there's a lot there's a lot to consider in moving it. And it doesn't happen overnight, but we can start doing things in stages and get there. And it's important to just start, you know rather than saying, well, this is how it is, this is how we do it, you know, this this has worked for us this far, but in reality, it, it hasn't worked. And we need to get out of that kind of medical mindset and really merge it with a more social and compassionate model. Mm. Now, one of the areas you mentioned is uh, you're a creative arts therapist, and uh, creative arts is definitely an area in which this can move from a clinical space into more of a personal or a emotional or even a spiritual sort of realm. Um, can you talk about a bit of the work that you've been doing with creative arts? Oh, yeah. So with creative arts, um, for many years, I have worked directly with older people, most of which have some form of dementia, and we create art together. And I would go into the setting. It might be long-term care or assisted living or even adult day centers. And it's really an opportunity for exploration, for creative self-expression. And so these opportunities, when the home calls me in to do these sessions, which I absolutely love doing it, I've done it for many years. However, it's very short, right? It's short-lived. It's like I'm there once, maybe a month, or I might be there twice a month if they can provide that service. But really these creative arts, they encompass so many different types of of self-expression and they should be really woven into the culture and not just as a one-time program you know, offered on the activities calendar, and then that's it. I mean, and it should be a choice, obviously, because not I understand not everybody 
you know, would like to participate in creative arts. But for the ones that do or have an interest in it or even a history with creative arts, it, that choice should be there, right? So it's really, really important. Just as human beings, we need a creative outlet, you know, whatever, mm. whatever form that is, we need it. Would you say that it's, it's going to help bring extra meaning to the lives of people who are in long-term aged care? Or what, apart from self-expression, what other things do you think it can bring? Oh my goodness. So, so with the creative arts, um, there's so many health benefits to it that I don't even think, you know, elder care settings are even quite aware. Maybe they are, but if, you know, if we're seeking non-pharmacological ways, right, to enhance quality of life, these are, the creative arts are one way to do that. So with the creative arts, there's so many different, it, it includes so many different types of expressions. So we might be talking about visual art or music or dance or movement, poetry, writing, you know, drama and improv. And so some of these health benefits about in these visual arts or or expressive arts, they reduce cortisol, right? They reduce stress. They reduce depression. Um, There's research to back, you know, pain reduction when people participate in the arts. So they really, oh, it can also stimulate our parasympathetic nervous system, right? So it helps calm us down, our body and our mind, and really improve our mood. So in creative arts therapy, which is, I am a creative arts therapist. So I've been trained to provide therapy through these different modalities. It's, it's that another way for people to express themselves, stimulate memories. Uh, again, some research suggests that creative arts can perhaps improve cognitive function. And, um, you know, because it really is a whole brain workout. It's not just that right side. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you're creative. That's your right side. It's, it's not so. So when we're, when we're playing music or we're making art, it's, it's using our whole brain. So recognizing these benefits, bringing creative arts and elder care, it just, it makes sense, right? It just, to provide these opportunities for imagination, self-expression and inspiring moments of joy, it's just, it just makes perfect sense. Mm. And how do the, the residents react? How do they respond? Is, is there any difficulty getting them engaged or is it, what's the response like? Well, you know what, it, it, just like any, anybody, they, there are people who really gravitate and go right for creative arts and some people they're not interested and that's okay. But I could say that a very common challenge that I've experienced, you know, over many years of, of creating with, with older people is resistance and resistance happens for different reasons. It might happen um, because they fear they might do it wrong or they feel they aren't artists, right? I'm doing my air quotes, which you can't see. Mm-hmm. But because of the, you know, there's a common assumption that really only artists can create. And in my clinical work, I've dealt with this resistance from older people, but even people who are artists, right? So that I, that's interesting. I find that people who are artists and have spent their lives in, you know, creating art in some form, but now they're living with dementia, sometimes they, you know, um, have the strongest sense of resistance. And I believe this occurs because they recognize that their expressions are different than they once were, right? And so they refuse to create for that reason. So this is something we talk about in the art therapy process. So validating, you know, these losses and, and encouraging them to, you know, encouraging that individual to really embrace that a new approach to their art. So I would say... Um, resistance. And then, you know what? And I just want to say this too. On the other hand, I want to point out 
that people who are living with dementia are often extremely imaginative and creative. And in some ways, the disease actually enhances these creative expressions. So there's, there is a, a positive, right? There's a, there's a flip side that, that I don't know that everyone's aware of. Um, and this is particularly true with Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal dementia. There's a, an interesting phenomenon called paradoxical functional facilitation. So when, when one or more parts of your brain are damaged or they stop working properly, other parts make up for it and they kick in, right? And they get enhanced. So we see that, you know, with these forms of dementia, where people who have never created in their life, perhaps, now they might be drawn to creative modalities. And it is beautiful. It is so, so, so beautiful to witness. Mm. And that really underscores something that was said in a conversation we had um, a few weeks ago with an author, Christine Bryden. She's an Australian uh, dementia advocate. She's been living with Alzheimer's for over 20 years. And she was describing how um, she may have lost some of the the analytical function of her brain, but uh, her ability to perceive things holistically and, and feel moods and, and be much more aware of the environment, that's definitely increased for her. So I find that that fascinating that we have such a, a preconception that dementia and Alzheimer's are the loss, not not a gain. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Ash. That's so true that we, we have this kind of doom and gloom around it. And that's not to say that loss isn't sad and that we, we mourn these losses, but there really can be such, you know, beauty and vitality. Um, and not just, you know, in spite of dementia, but because of it, you know, people are mm. really, really spontaneous and imaginative and expressive. Yeah. For anybody listening who, who might be trying to encourage someone to, to use creative arts or they're, they're in a space where they might be able to implement more creative arts practices in an aged care setting, do you have anything that would be helpful that, for them to hear to help people overcome their resistance? Yes, I would say definitely do not push. One thing that I notice is well-meaning staff or family members, they want to push because they have an agenda, right? They want their loved one or their 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 care partner, whoever it is, their resident, uh, you know, to create. Maybe they they were an artist so they they kind of push them. But really, we're, we're there to just support them and provide these opportunities and encourage them. So one thing that may work is to have materials, simple materials, you know, might be oil pastels or watercolors, say, um, or if it's music or, or whatever it is, and just have it there, start doing it and, you know, and kind of invite someone to come in. If, if they seem a little resistant and they say no, say, okay, that's okay. You know what? You can just watch. You can... You can just be with us if you want. Just, just sometimes my, I like to use humor, right? So that's a big part of it. And I'll say, just mm-hmm. supervise. Make sure I'm doing things okay. Or, <laughs> yeah. you know, just just be with us. You don't have to even participate. It's fine. So th- that would be my biggest thing is to just honor that person where they are. Don't push them. And always inviting and always encouraging. Fantastic. In what ways are you seeing creative arts being used as participatory activities in long-term care facilities at the moment in, in America? If we're talking about specifically long-term care communities, I am a huge fan of Ann Basting's Time Slips. Have you heard of Have you heard of Time Slips? No, I haven't, no. Oh, yeah. It's, it's beautiful because it's all about using imagination. It is for people living with dementia, utilizing um, imagination, asking what they call beautiful questions. Um, and creative storytelling. And I just, I love that because the program's not focused on memory, 
but rather expression in, in different ways that are really vibrant and meaningful. There's another program that's used in long-term care homes. It's called OMA, Opening Minds Through Art. And it is an intergenerational program in long-term care homes. And so this program, it really focuses on creative self-expression, social engagement, and they work to reduce those aging stereotypes about dementia. So OMA, Opening Minds Through Art, that's another great one that comes to mind. You're listening to the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. We're on a mission to examine ways to improve the quality of care and the quality of life for seniors. And each week, we're bringing aged care industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals directly to you to share their knowledge, stories, and experiences. In season one of the podcast, we delivered thought-provoking and meaningful episodes covering consumer experience, dementia care, palliative care, service transformation, and research and innovation. And we've got plenty more amazing guests lined up for season two. So maybe you'd like to partner with us and have your message showcased directly to our rapidly growing audience of aged care executives and people working within the industry. For advertising inquiries, please email acepodcast at silver, that's S-I-L-V-R, adventures.com.au. Now let's get back to this week's guest. Fantastic. Can we talk a little bit about Evergreen Minds, your not-for-profit? We absolutely can. (laughs) So Evergreen Minds, it's a new not-for-profit organization that I've recently founded, and I'm so excited about it, right? It It just combines everything I love and I feel like who I am. So I would describe it really as a philosophy as much as it is uh, nature-based dementia care. So at Evergreen Minds, we're really on a mission. I'm I'm shooting big here, Ash. We are on a mission to transform the world, to make access to natural spaces just a normal part of the aging process and how we care for people living with dementia. So, you know, we also have plans down the road. We're new, but we have... um, since I am in touch with Vassar, we have plans to incorporate some college students um, within our program and really honor those intergenerational relationships and connections and also help end those stigmas uh, around that surround dementia in our culture. And so I guess the reason, you know, it kind of came to fruition, Evergreen Minds, is, is as we age, I have found, and I'm going to say we kind of collectively, we get caught up in our busyness right? And we lose touch with being outside and, and we forget that we're interconnected with nature. And we can see this in how we care for older adults in long-term care communities, something we touched on a little earlier. So people, obviously for COVID reasons, it's, it's even a little more difficult now. So people are kept inside and it becomes normal and accepted that people generally do not interact with natural space in their day-to-day lives. So when they do go out, this is something that I found. So when older people who have been kept inside, they do go out, it can be uncomfortable, right? It's hot, it's cold. It, it's just, it's not routine. It doesn't, it's not a normal part of their their lives. So I believe long-term care communities, they, they're really, they're not designed with nature in mind. So especially when we in, in long-term care tend to keep people kind of locked up. And when someone has dementia, we lock them behind doors So, and I found that really sad. And I think that's kind of what sparked this whole idea. So, you know, I know there's organizations like the Greenhouse Project and the Eden Alternative, they, they, you know, other care communities, they do 
a lovely job with this. Um, so it is happening where people are connected with nature. And, and I should say most communities do have like patios, right? They have little garden areas and those are excellent and we need those. The, the difference is I believe that sunshine, fresh air, and the change of all the different seasons, right? Not just summer and spring, all the seasons, those should be woven into the daily lives and practices of long-term care and kind of getting back to those non-pharmological ways. We're always seeking new ways to help enhance quality of life, right? Whether it's, you know, through AI and and, um, virtual reality, we're always thinking of ways to improve the quality of life of people living in these um, care homes. And again, like with nature, the reason that I'm so passionate about it is because there are these physiological health benefits about being in natural spaces that it, it, again, it just makes sense. Like, why wouldn't we try nature first? Mm-hmm. And you're running some programs through that where you're, you're taking people on sort of creative arts walks through nature. Is that right? I am. It's, it's challenging now, Ash, with, with COVID. So what we're doing now is we are doing public events um, here. I, I live in New York and um, a lot of our board members live across the country in Montana and California. And so our hope is to to spread across you know the country, but right now I'm I'm doing very small public events. We are physically distanced. We you know we wear masks, so I keep the groups very small, not just for safety, but really for that connection, right? Because I want people to feel welcome, and I want people to have the opportunity to share what they want to share. Um, so these events are always outdoors, always in a natural space. It might be in the woods. Yesterday I was on the riverbank. Yeah, the, the sessions are very mindful and we offer different expressive offerings. So it might look like creating art with natural materials. We move our bodies with nature. We um, explore our surroundings with all of our senses and how, how it feels, you know, how, how these experiences of being outdoors feels in our minds and in our bodies. We might do a little drumming, a little poetry. So whatever form it arises. And um, it's, it's, it's quite simple, right? It, it's just all about bringing people together and closer to the natural world. And kind of like what we were talking about with time slips before, it's memory and language. It's not a prerequisite, right? So when we're out together and we're, we're enjoying this, this sensory experience of being in the outside, you know, natural world, it's memory and language are not required, yeah, absolutely. And the idea that an experience itself is is worthwhile, whether or not it's remembered in a week or a month or even a few hours, it's I think that's really important to, to tap into. Right. And and the care partners, people, you know, either they come themselves, right, if there are someone who is living with dementia, and sometimes they come with a care partner. And it just to see that connection, and I've been getting some emails and even some text messages, you know, thank you, that even like hours after, it's still, you know, kind of ripples, right? It, 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 that effect stays with you. Even if that, like you just said, if that memory of that, whatever it is that we were doing, the drumming or that project is gone, but the feeling of connectedness remains. And that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned something there about going out in all the seasons, not just summer and spring and and that seems to tap into to a phenomenon where as people age, we tend to want to protect them from things which are less comfortable or which we deem to be less comfortable. And one area that you've done a lot of research in is, is the way that death is handled in long-term aged care settings. 
it seems like that there's a lot of work here to to hide death from people in aged care settings. Is that what you found? And and is that necessary? So it is what I found, and I don't think it's necessary. So I think what what we should do in long term care is ask older people: Do they want to be protected from death of their peers? And I can tell you uh, from my research and exploring this topic for for several years, the answer is no. So older people are quite aware of their mortality, right? Newsflash, they they know they're going to die. But um, I can also say some people do not want to know if, you know, when someone else dies. I've talked to older people who didn't want to be a part of the study and we've had a conversation about death and they were like, no, you know what, it's, it's not, I'm not comfortable talking about it or my roommate's not comfortable talking about it. And that's totally okay. And that is what person-centered care is, right? Like that's all about choice. And that's one of the things that we don't give choice in. We kind of just automatically assume what's best for them. Yeah, I guess like too with, with COVID, you know, it's, it's so prevalent now, these losses, and it's almost overwhelming. But it's even more important, I think, that we address it and we acknowledge and we honor you know, these relationships. Mm. Yeah. And do you think that there are, there are perhaps some opportunities that are being missed by glossing over death in, in that scenario or, or not giving it a chance to be addressed fully? That, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, there, there are incredible opportunities that can arise when we create a space for grief. So older people, as I said, they know that they're going to die. So when we provide opportunities for them, right, to say goodbye. People have told me they wanted to say goodbye to their friends. They wanted to pray for them. They wanted to, one, you know, uh, one woman said, I just want to lay my hands on them before they go. Just one last time to say goodbye. So when we provide these opportunities, we're really honoring the living as well as the dead. And that's important. And something that we, we you know, we really should not lose sight of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other opportunity, uh, Ash, that comes to mind is in, in the research study that I did, once I opened that door to, you know, sharing and talking about these losses, they really started opening up about their personal losses in their lives. You know, whether it be their spouse, their child, their twin, um, their grandchild. And it was actually quite beautiful because people felt supported. And afterwards they were like, you know, one woman said, this is such a release, such a release because she could finally talk about it. You know, and I, I had a man in his 90s talk about his wife who had died 70 years ago. He never remarried. Wow. Right. So 70 years um, had gone by and now he was able to talk about his wife and nobody in the room had ever heard about her before. So it felt good for him to talk about her and speak her name. And so we could kind of create together around that and, and just be together. It was it was really moving. Yeah, you, you mentioned a word a, f- a few minutes ago that I want to circle back to in case there is something here, but you mentioned that some people didn't want to participate in the study because their roommates weren't comfortable with death. From my understanding in Australia, it, it, people in long-term care all have their own room. In the, the situation you described where there was a roommate, was this is this sharing a room because they're friends or they're in a relationship or was it is this something that's common more in a just as the, the setup of aged care in America? Yeah, so it is, excuse me, it is common that they have double, double occupancy. That sounds so clinical, right? But yes, two people to a room. So there are places that have just private rooms, but more commonly, there's a choice. So you either have a private room 
at a much higher cost or majority of, of residents do share a room. That's not all the homes. That's many of the homes. Um, you know, and, and I think that may change too, right, out of COVID coming through this because sharing rooms and sharing a bathroom and, and you know, it just, there's so many things that, that really need to shift. And aside from privacy, you know, the, the, the health benefit, there's just, we need to kind of move away from that. Um, unless, of course, people, partners of any kind want to share a room, that's fine. But yeah, it, we should definitely kind of move away from enforcing people when they move in to share a room. It's so interesting that in Australia, they don't even do that. Yeah, I, it, it's interesting to me that in America, they do do that. It's very common, um, very, very common. Mm -hmm. And it does cause yeah, distress it, sometimes because, you know, everybody needs space. <laughs> yeah, and and I imagine for, for people who've, you know, spent the best part of 50 or 60 years either living in their own room or sharing with a partner to then be sharing with a stranger, it must be quite overwhelming. Absolutely, absolutely, because you're, you know, you're experiencing, right, you're experiencing so many losses and and now you're moving in and, you're in a very small space with someone you don't know. You're absolutely right. True. And, yeah, and, and sometimes I have to say, too, I have seen where the, the relationship between people is a good thing, right? Like one person may be very mm. introverted and the roommate helps them and kind of brings them out of their shell a little bit. So in some ways, I, I've seen positives, too. So, you know, I don't want to do like this blanket statement, like get rid of them all. But, um, yeah, so there are there are some positives, too where people do like having that that person with them. Mm. I guess it, it can come back to what you were saying before about, you know, when somebody is about to enter an aged care facility, asking would they like to share a room with someone, would they like the company? And and having that option is is always, that's going to be key to having a more successful person-centered approach. Um, this seems like an example of, of something where perhaps the emotional or, or mental or non-physical needs of of aged care um, recipients are, are not being put as a, as a first priority. This is something we're hearing quite a lot about in Australia as well, and, and the, the kind of climate around this is changing. What do you see as some of the challenges to overcome in making non-physical needs more of a priority in aged care? So kind of getting back to what we talked about, I think with COVID, it is teaching us a bit more about empathy and what it feels like to experience forms of isolation, heightened anxiety, depression. And so going forward, I, I really believe we must kind of remove the medical mindset of care and, and programming too, right? Like I don't know in Australia if they, before COVID, like it was, it was the natural way to just pack the house, you know, when people had entertainment or, or any type of daily activities, it was very important for administrators to tell the activity uh, engagement staff, please fill the seats, get people in here, keep them busy. But, you know, moving forward, we really have to, to look at people as unique individuals and, you know, view them more holistically, you know, with a humanistic lens and not just like this kind of medical, get everybody, keep everybody busy, keep everybody active, you know, because that's what, again, what we want, our agenda, pushing our agenda onto them. You know, that's that's definitely a challenge, you know, the paternalizing that we talked about before mm. and um, just stepping into their shoes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the distinction points in Australia that seems to be making, that has been raised as a, an area of concern is that private aged care providers sometimes don't have the same standard of care as public aged care providers. So in Australia, there are a number of aged care facilities that are funded majoritively by the government. Uh, is that the case in America as well, that there are public um, care homes as well? Yeah, so there, there's private care homes and then there's homes that are funded by um, Medicaid and Medicare. And so these are the ones where you will find, you know, the, the double rooms and these mandates, which are important. I mean, they, they have mandates for, for person-centered care. So that is one of those challenges that really, that's actually, that topic right there is what got me to, to pursue my doctorate is with these Medicaid and Medicare funded homes in America, we are supposed to give people who move in choice, right? They have rights, of course, and they are supposed to have choice in their daily lives. And there's like pages of these. Yet at the same time, there's really no follow through. And it's it's very challenging to, to make sure that these rights and these choices are met every single day. There's no like follow through. And I've, I've actually, I did a poll, like I think it was 2015 on this topic. And I wanted to know what what care staff felt about it. You know, is it even possible to meet everybody's daily preferences who moves in? You know, technically, according to, you know, CMS, we should be meeting everybody's daily preferences. But, you know, it was a resounding no. Like they, staff felt it was, it really wasn't even possible. And that has to change. You know, that, that is definitely one of the things we have to, to look at. They, residents deserve to have their you know, all of the rights, whether we're talking about death, right? You know, sleeping, eating, the right to know about someone when they pass away. There's just a a broad range. And um, these are people and this is their home. And we're going to have to shift towards thinking along that line. Mm. Are you noticing that the the standard of care or the ability to to address people's individual needs is better met in the user pays system than it is in in a Medicare Medicaid system. I would say yes, yes. So and that shouldn't be right. Like it shouldn't be if you have you know more finances available to you, more resources. It, you know it shouldn't be that way. But it, it is true. I mean, I do think people get a little bit. Um, I don't want to say better care because I know people work so hard. Gosh, you know, I don't want, I don't want to people to think that I, I don't recognize the hard work that they're doing. Yeah. But, it, but as far as when people move in, yes. I mean, they're, they're splitting their time. Like, like I said, there's say 40 people in a, in a neighborhood and there might be two or three, two or three staff people to, to look after them and help meet these needs. And it's, is that sustainable and practical to say, could you meet all of these 40 people's daily preferences, mm. you know, and they're expected to? Yeah. I, and I don't think it needs to reflect at all on the staff who are doing doing a fantastic job with the resources available to them, but it's just a, a product of, of the system at the moment. It's interesting that in Australia, the perception is inverse, that the facilities that are doing the, the most effective care or that are having the, the least amount of issues arise are the public ones and the private ones are under a lot of scrutiny at the moment for um, perhaps prioritizing profits or, or some other factor over care for the residents. Yeah, an interesting sort of um, switch there. What changes would you like to see within aged care in the coming years, Michelle? 
Okay, so I want to see older people and staff really have a seat at the table when it comes to all of these things that we've talked about today. So rather than, you know, policymakers and, and admins kind of coming, coming up with these ideas, give older people and staff some, some voice and, you know, in regards to environmental and architectural design, those resident rights we just talked about, the way uh, the care is provided and honoring these, the daily preferences. So yeah, so in a nutshell, I would say, what changes? Okay, I would say less doors, more fresh air, um, more imagination and creativity, and no ageism. Yeah, some of those seem seem simple to implement, and some of those seem like they're going to be issues we'll be we'll be dealing with for a number of years. What does it take to to change the approach to imagination and creativity within aged care settings? Even though change is is difficult, like I said, we don't have to do it all at once. But start with programming that in small groups and weave in meaningful programming that engages people and, and utilizes imagination and forms of expression throughout their daily lives, giving them choice and asking them what they want. And, you know, if, if we're going back to the death topic, like what would they want to do? Like what kind of things would they want to do? Always putting it back to the people who live there. You know, do you want to have a, a tea? Do you want to have a create some kind of a, a board or a quilt? Um, it really just weaving that that creativity throughout the program, right? And it always, always comes back to choice. And um, yeah, and even and even with COVID, you know, I think I think people are doing who work in these homes are doing a, a phenomenal job, and they're just going doing the best that they that they can with what they have, but. I do think, you know, here at the government, you know, they have very strict uh, CDC, they have very strict guidelines, but, you know, why aren't we like getting outside, for example, you know, everybody should have some, some opportunity if they choose to get some fresh air every day. Mm -hmm. Do you want to play a little, sing a song today? Would you, would you like some art materials? You know, however, however it comes to be, but just provide options, choice. Yeah. Fantastic, Michelle. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver.com.au. See you next week.